Good news, everyone. It's time for another edition of Telescope Talk Pro, a hangout where you get to interact with professional astronomers from around the world, bringing the universe to your doorstep using ground-based observatories. My name is Tony Darnell from deepastronomy.space, and today we have a really excellent topic planned for you. We are going to um, we are going to talk about one particular we are going to talk about one particular signature or technosig, as I, like to, as I like to call them, that we might look for in our search for other civilizations. My guest today is Dr. Hector Socas-Navarro from the Institute of Astrophysics in the Canaries, but let me say it the proper way, the Instituto de Astrofisica de Canarias, <laughs> which operates an amazing observatory in Tenerife uh, and, and Las Palmas on the Canary Islands off the coast uh, of Spain and Portugal. Now, today, he's going to introduce, he is going to introduce us to Clark Exobelts, which is the region of space around the planet where potentially where potential geostationary or geosynchronous satellites would orbit. Now, the first I heard about these was when I was uh, was when Hector gave a talk at a techno signature workshop last month. I think it was last month, and I watched his talk online. And I said to myself, "I got to get this guy on a hangout for two reasons. One, I know him because we worked together back back when we were uh, in in uh, the high altitude observatory together, and second, because this is an outstanding uh, hangout talk. I thought so. Uh, I thought it would fit well with the hangout or telescope talk pro. So. I twittered him. I twittered on him, and he said, "I don't know no deep astronomy." And so we eventually talked, and uh, and he said, "Oh yeah, I remember you, Tony." So we're gonna. So we're we're here today. We have him here today. So, uh, wanna. But before I get started, I have some exciting news. Telescope Talk has a sponsor. That's right. OPT Telescopes in California are sponsoring both the professional edition of Telescope Talk, which you're watching right now, and the amateur version, which we have in the off weeks and is dedicated to enhancing the hobby of amateur astronomy. Now, I'm very excited about this partnership because, uh, and in particular, that's related to the Telescope Talk Pro version, OPT has professional services and they uh, a division of as well, and they are a world leader in educational and scientific telescopes and cameras for observatory use as well as advanced astrophotography. And for non-pros, for the ones who would be watching the amateur version, they are excellent at getting the telescopes out to the right people. So if you're in the market for a telescope, either as a gift for yourself uh, or, or, or as a gift or a gift for yourself, <laughs> then head over to their website. I put links in the description box below uh, so you can check out what they have. You're supporting Deep Astronomy by checking out what they've got. And let's thank them for this because they are bringing these hangouts to you guys. So thank you, OPT Telescopes. Okay, now... And just finally, I just want to say I partnered with them because I trust them. Uh, they're some of the smartest people I know. And when it comes to stuff like telescopes and getting beginners going and things like that, I, their staff is top notch. So I can't say enough good things about them. So let me bring up, without any more ado, let me bring up my panel. And right next to me is Christian Reddy from Launchpad Astronomy. Hi, Christian. How are you doing? Hey, Tony, how's it going? And congratulations on uh, OPT sponsorship of this Hangout. Thank you so much, OPT. Yeah. And uh, we're so great to have you all here. So good to see you again, Tony. Good to see you again, everybody. Yeah, okay. And uh, and if you haven't, by the way, uh, Christian and I are teaming up to do these Hangouts together. You need to go check out his uh, YouTube channel. It's uh, Launchpad Astronomy. Go subscribe to him. He's putting out great videos, astronomy videos, all the time. And uh, so you. Uh, you post like, how often do you post? 
Christian? How can well, you I try to upload once a week if I can. Um, I'd like to try to increase that if I could, but uh, you know, right now, once a week. I know. People tell you, if you want to be a YouTuber, you've got to follow the algorithm. And I'm like, no. If I have to live my life according to what an algorithm tells me, then no. I'm not if, if you're giving If you're giving folks what they want, that's what the <laughs> algorithm recognizes. That's you know? right. So anyway. That's all that matters. Good. So yeah, I invite you to check out his channel. Where, so this is one of those collaborations that YouTube likes to have channels do. And I want to yeah, I'd love to have you guys visit. Yep. Take a look. Yeah, and you're doing live streams too, right? Sometimes. I did. A, I did do my first live stream a couple of weeks ago. Um, that was a lot of fun. In fact, some of the folks here on the uh, chat were kind enough to join me. Uh, I should probably do some more of those uh, yeah, once I can, yeah, you know, get my live stream. Is I'm fun. learning from. I'm learning from you, Tony. Yeah. Well, it's a long learning curve if you're following me. Okay, my guest today. Let me get to. Uh, let me get to Hector. Hector Socas Navarro. Welcome, Hector. It is so good to see you again. How you doing? I'm doing fine. Thank you, Tony. It's great to see you again. Uh, it's been a long time since HAO. That's right. Those um, were, uh, now we're, don't, don't say, don't say how, how long, please. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, I was going to ask you if you had had your PhD then, but I think you did. You were, you were, you were definitely, you were still, uh, uh, you were on the scientist track. That's what I remember anyway. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I did my PhD here in the Canaries and then right after I finished, that's when I moved to HAO. Yeah. Okay. So, but that was solar physics. How did you go from mm -hmm. that to Clark Exobelts and studying technological sig signatures? Well, my, my background is actually astrophysics. You know, I like all of astronomy, uh, like you. I love astronomy, right? Yeah. Um, I, I just happened to, to do my PhD in solar physics because that was, uh, in, in, in my opinion, that was the best project that was offered to the, uh, to the students back then at the time. And so that's how I, I got into, into solar physics. And most of my career has been in solar physics. But I've always had an interest in other areas of, of astronomy. And I've actually done some other works here and there where I thought that maybe, um, you know, my... Uh, uh, my modest experience could uh, could help in in some interesting problem in astronomy. I've uh, always tried to go for it and and try to do other things. Uh, I, I try to have fun, you know. Just uh, try to learn new things, uh, learn to use um, different telescopes, instruments, techniques. Uh, it's always fun to learn new things. That's right. That's what people don't know about. Uh, that's what people don't know about astronomers. Astronomers, folks. We just want to have fun. That's all. We just want to have fun. Okay. So sorry, I had to do that joke. when I already say that? All right. So um, this is your chance, folks. Hector is here. I want you to ask him questions. I'm seeing the live chat on YouTube go off. I've also got a Discord server. That server is linked to that is in the description box. I'm looking at Twitch as well as um, Facebook. So I'm on everywhere. And so we hope you guys will live. Uh, we'll leave some questions for Hector as we go along. And uh, this is your chance to interact directly with with astronomers in the field doing ground based astronomy. So, um, all right, where should we start? I think um, Hector, maybe you should tell us, define for us what Clark exobelts are. I'm going to put up this picture you sent of uh, Arthur C. Clark while you while you give us a brief definition. Okay. Um, well. It's it's basically a belt of satellites that uh, we we have our own uh, Clark belt on Earth. Okay, so we have um, like two thirds of our satellites are in low Earth orbit, which is in the first let's say 
thousand, uh, two thousand kilometers of altitude. Okay, that's where most of our satellites are. That's where we have the uh, the Hubble Space Telescope, the International Space Station, and and all of our communication. Well, not communication satellites. Sorry, that was a bad example. But about two thirds of our satellites are there, and and um, that's where most of our uh, space junk is. But there is a very interesting region much further out. Um, remember, about remember two-thirds of our Earth satellites are at 1,000 kilometers. If we go out to 36,000 kilometers, then uh, we have a very interesting um, set of satellites. They form a ring around Earth or a belt around Earth, and these are the geostationary satellites. Those are the satellites that basically uh, do uh, th they orbit the Earth in 24 hours, and that means that they're uh, their orbital motion matches exactly the Earth rotation. And that means that those satellites are fixed on the sky. So that's why we call them geostationary. Uh, and those satellites, are, those satellites are very useful. And Arthur C. Clarke was one of the pioneers in realizing that uh, it will be very interesting to have devices up there for telecommunications and for other purposes. So Sometimes in, in his honor, we refer to this as the Clark orbit. Um, and now we have these satellites up there. They form the, uh, the Clark belt. So we have about one third of our satellites out there. It's much further out. So it's much more expensive to get there. So you have to have good reasons to go there. And there's many good reasons to go there. So that's why we have so many of them. And so that's, you know, our own. That's humanity's Clark belt. Now you're asking about Clark Exo belts. You know, yeah. Tony, in astronomy, we use the prefix uh, Exo to refer to things in planets outside the uh, solar system. Yeah. So the idea is that there might be planets out there where other intelligent species might live, and they might also put satellites uh, in orbit around their planet. And eventually, some of them might end up forming their own Clark Exo belt. So. That's that's now the idea. A, Clark, it, so it's important yeah. then that when we talk about the Clark Belt around Earth and the Exo Belts around other planets, these need to be geostationary satellites. Why not just we have so many? I mean, okay, th that's a pretty crowded piece of real estate above our Earth. Is that why you 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 there there's there, the emphasis on stationary geostationary orbits? Because well, the fact. It yeah, uh, of course. I mean, other people might have uh, the equivalent of our low orbit uh, satellites as well. But the problem is that it's it's very hard to recognize those uh, from like unless you have spectroscopy. Uh, if you only have photometric observations, which is what we have for most of our of, of the exoplanets that we see, uh, you would not be able to identify those satellites. Uh, I think later on, when we go to the details of what these uh, Clark satellites would look like during a transit, then I think it will be easier to understand why these are very interesting. Uh, the reason is that the other ones, um, it's easy to, mix, to mistake them uh, by the planet itself. So they, they form a sphere around the planet, right? Um, and so just from the transit footprint, you cannot really tell that you're seeing satellites. You might think that you're just seeing the planet atmosphere or maybe the planet itself. Whereas these are very interesting because uh, they're much farther out, uh, they leave a clear signature, and um, they are easy to associate with an uh, intelligent origin because 
you know, there's this, uh, this orbit is very specific. It has to be this particular altitude. On Earth, there's only one orbit that is geostationary, and that is at 36,000 kilometers, right? Um, okay, so let me, let me just make sure I want to clarify a couple things. So if yeah. we just use, if we, let's say there's a, like our own, let's use our own Earth as an example first before we go out to the exoplanets. So on Earth, we have the shroud of satellites in orbit around the, they're all over the place right it's just this right. blanket and but within that shroud is a concentrated number of satellites in this geosynchronous band that would be enhanced a bit if we were to take a real far away step back look at earth and see the shroud of satellites you're saying we could we may even just confuse it with the planet itself it might just be we, we would have a hard time differentiating between the planet and those that shroud but Within that shroud is a concentrated amount of satellites that would show up as a band. And that band, you're saying, is deliberate. Okay, right? but yeah, but let me just say something. This uh, Clark Belt is much further out than where most of our satellites are. So remember, this shroud, this spherical shell of satellites is at uh, a thousand kilometers above the Earth's surface. Now, the Clark Belt is 36,000 kilometers. Uh, uh, in, in altitude. So it's 36 times farther out. So if you were to take this picture from far away, you will first see this belt uh, of geostationary satellites, and then you will see the planet itself, which is uh, about 6,000 kilometers in radius, and then a thin shell around it with the low orbit satellites. Right. So this shroud that you're talking about, that is basically like a blanket around the planet, uh, is further, it, it's, um, it's much, uh, you know, so the belt is much further out, is what I'm trying to say. Okay. I have this animation playing, uh, the first one that you sent, uh, the, hmm. that shows this. Um, this, this, uh, you want to describe this animation just a little bit? It's the first one, the one, the, not the transit one. Right. So this animation, uh, basically, this is an artistic rendition of an exoplanet that will have a really, really crowded Clark exobelt around it. Okay. Uh, so we can see all these satellites that are moving around the planet. And it's interesting that uh, just just because of uh, geometrical projection, you can see that at the at the edges on the left and the right, um, you can you can see a much higher density of objects just because of projection, and this is very useful because you have a much higher opacity there. And during the transit, you're going to see much clearer the signature of the edges, um, and that's a clear hint that would help us identify this uh, structure, this belt. Um, just a just a quick uh, question then: when you're looking at this belt and you're seeing this, how could how could this be distinguished from a ring system? Yeah, that's a very good question. So um, the geometry is slightly different, but, but before we go into the subtleties, uh, the the thing to to uh, I think the, the interesting thing here is to realize that um, the Clark altitude is a very specific altitude, right? So if you find a ring of um, a ring system 
that has exactly the radius of the Clark orbit, then that's a very clear indication that it's probably not natural because there's no natural process that we know of that has a preference for this orbit, right? Yes. It will be too much of a coincidence that you have a ring system with this radius. So that, that is the first consideration to have. Uh, and that's the first reason why this, uh, this Clark system is so, so interesting. This Clark belt is so interesting. Uh, second thing is that the geometry is, is different uh, because rings are flat. Okay, and but they have a certain range of uh, of uh, radius. So a, a ring system, like if you think about Saturn, for instance, um, it goes from uh, an inner ring close to the planet to an outer ring further out. Um, so it, it has a spatial extension in the radial direction, but it's flat. Whereas a Clark belt is just the opposite. Okay, it has a very specific radius. Uh, it has a very strict uh, altitude, but it it's more extended in the um, in the direction perpendicular to the equator, right? So um, I did some simulations in my paper about how you could distinguish these two. The light curves will be slightly different. Now you'll need very large telescopes to to actually uh, distinguish these two uh, light curves, uh, but they are different. So in principle, you could tell them apart. And another thing to, um, to, to mention here is that rings are very interesting because so far we haven't found any. I mean, we have found over 3,800 exoplanets, okay, almost 4,000 exoplanets. None of them has rings. And this is a very interesting problem in astrophysics. We don't know exactly why. Uh, there are some ideas out there. I mean, there's one exception. There's this super Saturn, right? There's this planet mm -hmm. with a gigantic ring system. But that's actually, um, it, it's not a long-term stable system. It's more like a proto-moon disk. It's probably a place where moons are being formed. It's not a, you know, a, a proper ring system. It's like an accretion disk. Oh, okay. But to be like, fair, I mean, to, to even see these exoplanets at all, we're... Even the big ones, super hot Jupiters, these, we're still looking at relatively tiny uh, dips in brightness. How could we hope to see a ring embedded in that light curve uh, anyway, with, with the transit method, let's say? Or, well, I don't even think it would show up in a radial velocity. Uh, right. It, exactly. It's very difficult. Um, and, so and to say that we, the, don't, we haven't found any, could that just be a bias toward our method? Right. That's what I was going to wonder. Well, we should have we should have uh, found them um, okay. at least the big ones. I okay. mean, we should have even, seen even at the current something. sensitivity. We should be we should have detected something. Yeah, something yeah. Right. So okay. I, I haven't worked on this myself, but uh, I know that the, there's folks out there who are looking for these kind of things, and and they are a bit puzzled that they have not been found. Um, okay. And there was an idea which I I think is interesting, which is that perhaps rings require eyes for. Uh, formation. Because if you look at our own solar system, all the outer planets have rings. Okay, Even even some minor bodies like uh, Haumea have rings, mm -hmm. but none of the inner planets have them. And, and the difference is that, you know, the ice line in the solar system is somewhere between, uh, between Mars and Jupiter, uh, somewhere around there. Right. Um, so there's a proposal actually by a, 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 a scientist called Hedman, uh, where he, he proposed that, um, you need, uh, you need eyes to form rings. And so inside the water line, you don't have eyes because, because, uh, it evaporates. Uh, and that's why we don't have rings in the inner solar system. And this could explain why we haven't found them in exoplanets because our search is biased. We are mm -hmm. more likely to find planets closer to their star. Um, mm -hmm. and so, 
Yeah, that's a that's good point because of the right. We Fair have point. to be looking at the transit at the time to be able to detect it, and that, that that's preferential towards those planets that transit a lot. Right, Galaxia. Real quick, I just want to say, do we have satellites in? Do we have satellites in the Clark Belt? Probably talked about this at the beginning. We did. Uh, yes, that's what this is based on. What we call the uh, planets in in orbit and geosynchronous orbit around our Earth, the Clark Belt, and we're talking about hypothetical. Uh, satellites on hypothetical planets, uh, exoplanets, as exobelts, and so, but we do have one, and it's you know, I was going to say, Tony, that raises this. All this raises a really interesting point. I mean, typically when we think about techno signatures, we're talk, we're you know, we're thinking about big things like Dyson spheres, things that are way beyond our abilities to develop right now. Uh, Hector, what you're talking about is something that could identify a. You know, I, I saw in your paper, you refer to it as a moderately advanced civilization, right? So basically, yeah. you're looking for folks like us. Right. Or maybe it's slightly uh, or moderately more advanced than us. Um, okay, right. So here, sometimes people uh, tell me, you know, your idea is crazy. Um, it's uh, it's impossible. I mean, these, these, uh, uh, these Clark Belt will have to be very crowded, and even so, it, it will be very difficult to detect. And I say, well, yeah, maybe, maybe that's true. But we, we have gone from like Dyson spheres, which are colossal, um, <laughs> like system wide structures. That was, that's what people in the sixties thought that we could detect. Um, so in the sixties, we were thinking about detecting things that were like solar system scale in size. Um, and now as technology has improved, we can see smaller things, uh, they're still pretty big things. We're talking about planetary scales. But in 50 years, we've gone from looking for solar system scale to planetary scale, right? So as our technology has improved, we are sensitive to lower and lower alien technology, right? I mentioned this, I don't know, Tony, if you saw my, my presentation at the, at the Techno Signatures Workshop, I, I talked about this, the, this technology balance equation that I referred to in a colorful manner to say that basically as your technology goes up, then the alien technology that you can detect goes down. So we are still... <laughs> yeah, I don't remember that. <laughs> yeah. Um, at some point, we'll do the crossover and then we'll be able to see technology, uh, you know, Less more primitive than ours. Than ours. Yeah, right. <laughs> but, but we're not quite there uh, yet. We're not there yet. So we still have to look for, you know, really big things. Right now, we're looking for planetary sized things because that's that's what we can do. Okay, I want to interrupt you for just a moment because I forgot to say at the top of the Hangout that I put a link, or Hector has shared his paper uh, with you. The link to that is in the description box, so feel free to click on it and read it. You've submitted this to, is it AppJ? Is that right? Yes, okay. it's it's published in AppJ, yeah. Oh, it's oh, okay, so it's Okay, so it's been okay. published. Okay, cool. Yeah. Good, okay. So, uh, yes, definitely check it out and, uh, and, and follow along. Uh, you know, after the hangout, if you have more questions, hopefully that will get to it. So I want to thank Hector for sharing now because not all, we don't always sure. get a copy of the paper. Um, okay, mm -hmm. so Matt and Mad End wants to know. Um, this is a relevant question to what you were just talking about. Let me uh, let me read it real quick. How high must this density be to be able to detect it, and how high is it in our system? And while you answer that, I'm going to play this transit animation. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yep. So, how, what what kind of density do you do you do you need to be able to detect detect this? So it depends. It depends very much on the uh, the particular planet and its star. 
Um, and one of the things that the paper does is to quantify this for different scenarios. It turns out that it's much easier in the case of red dwarfs and, and Earth-like planets. You have a much better planet-to-start ratio than, say, in an Earth-Sun uh, scenario, right? So this is like, actually, it's the same with exoplanet search. Uh, it's more favorable. The conditions are more favorable when you're looking at red dwarfs. Um, so from that point of view, we, we have the same, the optimal conditions are the same as for exoplanet search. Now, in those conditions, you need to have a filling uh, of the uh, belt area of roughly between 10 to the minus 5 and 10 to the minus 4. That's the, that's the rough number. So 10 thousandths to a thousandths. Right. Okay. No, uh, no, 10, 10 thousandths to... Uh, Ten to the five to one hundred thousand. Oh, sorry, I went the other one. I went the wrong way. <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah. So that that means basically that if you have one meter objects, they should be spread. Uh, they should be separated on average a hundred meters apart from each other. If if they are one kilometer cities, then they should be a hundred kilometers from each other. That's basically what we can detect with our technology. And then. The comparison with our current state, basically, we're about a billion times uh, below that, right? So we'll need to have a, for us to detect this in nearby stars, we will need the aliens to have a Clark Belt that is a billion times more populated than ours, at least. In order for the density to be great enough that it would actually show up in our light curves. Yeah. yeah. And, and you're saying, Hector, that's with our present level of technology, our present level of sensitivity. Uh, that's is that right? right. So um, if I could just act, ask on that, since this is telescope, right? I wanted to kind of ask a telescope related question. I saw something in the comment uh, and uh, I think it, I think it was asking, uh, yeah, Neil, you asked, what's the best scope type IR? And I think maybe what you might be asking is what's the best uh, sort of telescope setup you'd want to use to go looking for these signatures and wavelength, hmm. I guess. Yeah. And wavelength. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a good question. Um, eventually, I mean, the most important thing here is uh, photometric uh, stability because you need to look at uh, very tiny contrasts between the planet and the star. Um, so you need to be able to find differences in the, in the light that we get from the star of the order of 10 to the, you know, uh, minus six or even lower than that. Um, so you need sort of parts per million precision in your photometry. And that's, that's, uh, that's really hard to do, but, uh, but it's something like, I mean, the Kepler mission has uh, a few tens of parts per million precision. Um, but it's so in space. It's in space, exactly. Space is good for this kind of observations because <laughs> it gives you more stability, yeah. Um, at least for the identification of candidates. Then when you want to do the follow-up to get more details, then you might be better off with ground-based, really, really big telescopes. Um, in terms of wavelength, um, the interesting thing here is that it, if you remember, I mentioned earlier that red dwarfs are the ideal candidates for, for this mm. kind of uh, detection. Right. Uh, now, red dwarfs tend to emit more in the infrared than they emit in the visible. Um, so by looking in the near infrared, you might have a better um, better photometry just because you have better signal-to-noise ratio there for this particular type of stars. 
But again, we don't know if the aliens live on red dwarfs. Maybe red dwarfs are bad for life because they're very active. Some people think that uh, life is less likely to develop around red dwarfs. So um, essentially, we don't know. That, that's really a frustrating thing with SETI, that uh, there are so many unknowns that it's really hard to to really make any any guesses on where to look you have to look everywhere <laughs> um, that's true i mean we it would be great if we could just answer the question is life common i mean just basic everyday you know run-of-the-mill right. non-intelligent civilization creating life is that even possible we don't there's so much we don't know and that is i think you're right the most one of the most frustrating things in answering these questions is we might be able to these might be all over the place these uh these clark exo belts or other technological signatures but we just don't know even what's possible to be able to, to guess at exactly. finding these things there's some talk in the chat about iridium bursts they've been talking about iridium bursts now iridium bursts iridium is a company that has built a whole system of satellites that orbit the planet they are communication satellites uh and you, they have a glare a, a flash that glints off of them as the sun shines off of them and that we can see them here on earth uh they're called iridium flares i think they're called iridium flares anyway mm -hmm. yeah uh they are good uh, flashes i might have was thinking it might have been too so the question is hector can you see these? If they had an iridium sort of system, would you be able to see flashes, optical, I guess, flashes from these satellites? Or are we just looking at dips in brightness as the belt blocks the light from the star? Uh, you you can also see light reflected uh, off of these uh, devices. If Again, if there's a large number of them. Um, I don't think you would see flashes because... Since you need a large number of devices, then at any given time, some of them will be sending flashes your way. So you will see like a constant light level. You will not see these flashes just because there's so many of them. Uh, but I mean, regardless of the type of device that you have, you so you have two effects. First, you have the transit, the normal transit that uh, the uh, this is what, what we saw in the movie that you show, where where the planet passes in front of the star. But then um, in the opposite point of the orbit, when the planet is about to uh, to to hide behind the star, then you have an increase of light because of the reflection uh, of light from these devices. But this effect is lower than the than the darkening from the transit, the, the primary transit. So uh, you you would have that effect as well, but oh. it's uh, it's um, it's more difficult to see it. Oh, that's interesting. So as the belt, as the planet goes around the star and comes at, at it from behind, right before it gets eclipsed by the star, you might see an increase in brightness due to those exactly. uh, due to those exobelt reflections. Well, that's pretty cool. Okay, I was waiting for this, James Dugan. Uh, I was waiting for this. I was going to ask him. I was going to ask him right about now. We're about halfway through, so I'll ask him now. Okay, we all heard about Tabby Star. Do you remember that, Hector? Mm -hmm. Remember Tabby Star, where we thought we had this. Uh, this uh some kind of dyson sphere kind of thing going on tell us it's aliens yeah tell us what we all uh, want to hear so really it was exobelts right exactly yeah <laughs> <laughs> I've, that's funny I've, I've i've worked also I've, I've made observations of that star with my colleagues here <laughs> oh you did yeah so so what, what did they I, I, I kind of stopped paying attention after a while because everybody was getting a little carried away with it. What did they say about that? Was it just dust or did they confirm it was some kind of dust? 
yeah, the the so the things that what we've seen uh, in the during the last episodes of uh, dimming events uh, that took place in May last year uh, is that the way these um, uh, th there's a what we call chromaticity in the uh, in the dimmings. That means that whatever is blocking the light, it's not completely opaque. Um, so it blocks some wavelengths more than others. Um, and so the most natural explanation for this is that you don't have a solid object, but instead you have something like a cloud of dust. And in fact, uh, the footprint of this uh, chromaticity um, is similar to you know, some types of dust. Uh, and, and so that's right now the, the hypothesis. There's clouds of dust uh, orbiting this star. Now, where does that dust comes from? We don't know. Uh, my favorite hypothesis is that uh, there was a uh, an interplanetary war uh, with a planet blasting space station that basically blew one of these planets to to dust. Um, so, I think that that's the most plausible explanation. Yeah. Occam's razor, right there. Yeah, exactly. It's very tragic. But okay, James, what... I should have read your I should have read your question a little more carefully. I saw Tabby <laughs> Star and went bop. Okay, so uh, but but he's asking about a Tabby Star type asteroid belt. Uh, can you tell the difference between what you were just saying was around Tabby's or some kind of dust or an asteroid belt kind of situation? And can you tell the difference between that and a Clark belt? And I think the answer, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, has to do with the fact that this system, Tabby Star, that belt is a system-wide phenomenon, and we're talking about something that's planet-wide, right? That's sort of a on the on a planetary scale. Exactly. Okay. And so you'd be We're able to tell which was which, right? You could distinguish between, oh, that's not a asteroid belt around the system. That's an exo belt around that planet. Exactly. Okay. So this is a much smaller scale effect. Um, we are looking about, we're looking at variations of the signature of a planet transiting its star. Um, so it's much, much more subtle. Okay. Steve Davis, how can you tell? Hang on, let me get the comment up here right. How can you tell what the rotation rate of the planet of the planet is in order to determine the correct belt radius? Ah, that's a good point, right? In order in order to know how far out that synchronous that ge geosynchronous orbit is, you got to know the rotation rate of the planet, don't you? Yeah, that that is an excellent question. So there's um, uh, th there's several different situations here. Um, some planets, we know that they are co-rotating with, with their star, which means that their orbital, their, sorry, their, yeah, the rotation uh, is uh, synchronized to their orbital motion. So for those planets, we know exactly what their rotation period is because it's the same as their orbital period. Uh, for other planets where they are not so dominated by their by their star gravity, then you just have to observe it, uh, and that's difficult. But in some cases, if there's um, if this planet has an inhomogeneous surface, then there's albedo variations uh, that can help you um, uh, determine the rotation period. But for that, you require very large telescopes. We're talking about things like the TMT or the the ELT. Um, this kind of, you know, 30-meter, 40-meter telescopes. Okay, um, I don't understand upcycles electronics' this question, but I'm going to ask it because maybe you do. Uh, is it possible to have one billion times more material in our Clark belt? Uh, what about Kessler syndrome? I don't know what Kessler yeah. syndrome is. Yeah. Oh. 
Maybe it's interesting questions. There's some discussion about that in my paper. It, it is perfectly uh, feasible. So Kessler syndrome is this um, this idea that space junk eventually uh, will cause a runaway uh, catastrophic chain of uh, collisions oh, okay. between um, the devices in orbit, right? So you have a screw that hits a satellite, rips up a piece, that piece, uh, you know, collides with another satellite, blows it up, and then that creates a cascading sort of like in gravity at the beginning of the movie that precipitates the whole uh, scenario. <laughs> um, now, I mean, that, that scenario is, is, very, is a very valid scenario for low Earth orbit. Uh, and there's two reasons. First, low Earth orbit is much more uh, packed. It's a smaller space. Like I said, it's only the first thousand kilometers. But most importantly, the, the, the satellites that we have in low orbit, each one of them has its own uh, orbit. Right, they have completely different orbits. So you have devices that are sharing the same space, and they're moving on different orbits. So they're moving at velocity, relative velocities of thousands of kilometers per hour, right? Mm -hmm. um, so any 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 collision will be catastrophic. However, the Clark Belt first first of all is much further out. Okay, it's not so uh, it's not so heavily populated. But even if it were heavily populated. All the devices there are moving synchronously. They're moving in the same direction at the same speed. They have to in order to be in this orbit, right? And if you put them in this orbit, it's because you want them to be geosynchronous. So you want them to have all the same speed, which is the same as the Earth um, rotational uh, speed. That means they're moving like a procession. So the relative velocities between them are very, very small. So uh, Kessler syndrome is very unlikely in, in the Clark Belt. Oh, that's very interesting because yeah, the the uh, the the spot the, the only thing that, that that would that would change between a different satellite in that area is where above the planet it would want to park itself, and so it would just be following along the planet in that in that at the same exact speed. So that's interesting. I, that, that makes a lot of sense. Exactly. Um, uh, Adam Synergy wants to know how would we know a civilization is still there? Um, we we could be detecting the tech remnants of long dead aliens exactly that's a very good question so there's um um there's a i mean some technomarkers are what we call long-lived and some others are short-lived and there's advantages and disadvantages of both from the point of view of searching for alien civilizations long-lived technomarkers are those that could potentially live for, I don't know, millions of years, maybe a Dyson sphere. If somebody builds a Dyson sphere, something as big as the solar system, you could imagine that that thing is going to be very robust and very stable. So it may be that your civilization becomes extinct or they move away, or maybe they move beyond what I call the technology horizon. They become so advanced that we cannot perceive their technology, right? Because it's, it's like, uh, it's too advanced for us to, to interact. Um, and so in that case, finding one of these um, structures will be like archaeology, right? Like finding remnants of an old civilization. It will still be interesting, of course. It will be very interesting. Um, so the disadvantage is that they might not be there anymore. But the advantage, the advantage is because they live, uh, these technomarkers, they live longer, they are more likely uh, to be detected. Then we have the short-lived technomarkers, okay? And those are, you know, they have the advantage that if you find them, then you can be sure that there's somebody there. Uh, are they more obvious? Are they more obvious because they're short? Uh, 
Not necessarily. Okay. Uh, so this this distinction only refers to the lifetime. Um, and so if you find them, it, it's good because you know there's somebody there. But the disadvantage is that you know you have the. It, I mean, it's called the synchronicity problem. Um, you have to, in order to find another civilization, you have to coexist at the same time. And we don't know how long civilizations live. So we don't know how likely it is that we will live at, at precisely the same time. Again, this unknown. is one of those mm. frustrating unknowns. Yeah. So the Clark Belt is somewhere in between, is what I call an intermediate lift. Well, give me uh, an example mark. of a short, short, short uh, term yeah. one. Uh, like atmospheric composition. I mean, some people are looking for aerosols from industrial activity. If you analyze a planet uh, atmosphere and you find some um, some evidence that there's industrial activity there, then those are relatively short-lived. Uh, if you stop producing them, then maybe in 100 years, they will uh, disappear from the atmosphere. Okay, yeah. I had a hangout with Adam Frank a while back about his uh, paper with... Uh global warming might put the possibility of that being a or uh, climate change being a great filter and he was he was touting that point where if we look at these atmospheres we should be able to see you know uh, evidence of their technology uh in their in their greenhouse gases things like that right so right and that's an example so of a short-term one Exactly. And this one is intermediate because our satellite, it, it depends on the planetary system. Some systems will be more stable, some others will be less, but our Clark Belt could potentially uh, remain there for thousands of years. So it's not millions of years, but, you know, it gives you... Yeah, well, I wonder uh, what would cause it, what would cause something like that to degrade? Maybe maybe passing asteroids or comets or something, maybe messing them up. Because well, otherwise it's pretty yeah, stable up gravity there. Gravity from the moon or sure, perturbation okay, the moon. From, from the planets. I mean, eventually it will disappear, but it will take a long time. Okay. Well, that goes into Superluminal's question. It's relevant here. Given our level of technology, what would be the best way to signal our presence? For example, installing giant reflectors on our on in our Clark belt. Would that be a possibility? You already said it's going to be bound for a thousand years or so. So that's already a pretty good way to advertise. Yeah, it depends. I mean, it, it, it's all about this is like a, like a publicity. It, it's all about targeting. Do you want to broadcast to the whole galaxy or do you want to broadcast in a specific direction? For example, if you're thinking about broadcasting your presence to some other star, then the best way will be with uh, super powerful lasers. Um, and some people are thinking that this uh, Starshot initiative, this idea to send uh, uh, tiny probes to uh, um, to Proxima Centauri, um, this requires the use of very high-powered laser to to push this light sail to a, a fraction of the speed of light. Uh, now, a civilization in that path along the the light beam will all of a sudden receive a very bright light beam from Earth. Uh, right, so that will be a very, very clear message that something weird is going on here, but it would only be in that direction. Uh, only folks in that direction will see us. Uh, same with radio signals. We could have these, you know, these high-power radars that we could focus in one direction and send a signal somewhere. Um, that will be the most obvious signal that we can send, but it's in one direction. Um, another possibility would be making our transit obvious. And one way is what you said, Tony, having giant reflectors, uh, reflecting light. Uh, or 
building something that would leave a shadow during our transit. Um, so, you know, weird shapes, very large objects like a triangular moon, an artificial triangular moon, for instance, that will make it very clear that we are sending a message, but that will be visible only to stars that see our transit. Right? Yes. So yeah. that, right. Uh, and what people forget is that, we, like you said earlier in the Hangout, we are biased toward really fast uh, transit times. We see we see stars and Tess has seen stars on the order of, that orbit their star or planets that orbit their stars in you know order of hours and a couple of days. Right? These are really really close planets to their star uh, because right. we're we, we're not looking for a long time. In order, to, imagine if you wanted to see the Earth as an exoplanet from far away, you'd have to be looking at our star. For at least 365 days because you don't know and we have to be all lined up before you would see the little dip in brightness and that is something even kepler uh it, it stood for it that's one reason it stared for five years at the constellation of, of, of cygnus so that it could right. try and capture earth-like planets and to do that you with they knew they needed a large a long year so but even then cool. just one dip you know you can't you can't confirm it that way. All yeah, you, you need several dips to really, really right. get an Ideally, idea of what you're looking for. Which means you need to be looking for several years to catch that repeated uh, dip in brightness. Um, exactly. I did want to uh, ask a question that was asked here in the chat, uh, if you don't mind. Um, if I could just find it here. Uh, let's see. Read if we have... Through. Where was it? Oh, gosh, I just lost... Oh, yeah. So, uh, Crazy Christina was asking, uh, will it be possible... <laughs> to differentiate between an object like Enceladus and satellites. I, I guess, I guess uh, referring to like artificial satellites. Uh, and I guess uh, maybe Christine is asking, are we able to distinguish, you know, individual uh, artificial satellites from just a bunch of uh, small moons? Well, I mean, I don't. Th well, finding moons is very hard. I mean, some some people are looking for that. In fact, we had we had news uh, last week of a possible possible. Yeah, we did um, a hangout on that last week. Of an exomoon. Sorry, we did Tony? we did a hangout Astro Coffee on that last week. Yeah, yep. yeah, exactly. So it, it's a hot uh, topic in astrophysics right now, finding moons. Um, I don't think we can see individual objects of the belt, but we can definitely tell the difference between a moon and a belt of satellites. Uh, the, the light curves will be completely different. And the, the belt of satellites is symmetric with respect to the planet, right? Um, so if you remember in the, the video that Tony played with the transit, you see the darker spot first uh, at the edge of the, of the belt, and then the planet, and then the trailing edge. Uh, as another dark spot. So if you if your data are not very good uh, and you could mistake the edge of the belt with the moon, then you will have another moon symmetrically on the other side, which will be very weird. Um, and then, of course, again, the, the very... I think that the best test is when you calculate the altitude and you confirm that it's at the Clark altitude. I mean, that's a really telling sign that it's artificial. Uh, right. Clark, that critical Clark, distance. I love that. I love that word. Okay, uh, Mad End. Uh, could it could it be possible that the exo belts of an exact of an advanced civilization? Uh, hey, let me let me start that again. Could it be possible that the exo belt of an advanced civilization is smaller due to technical advances like CubeSats? 
<laughs> maybe they're maybe they miniaturize their their satellites, Hector. Right, or maybe Smaller. they're building, or maybe they're oh, building. Oh, you mean, you mean that the signature of yeah. the exobelt would be very tiny because they're miniature exactly. satellites instead of big things. Exactly. I mean, that's a. I mean, again, that's the that's the argument. It is very hard to predict the technological advancement. And uh, but if you look at uh, if you look at our own history. Uh, even though we're building smaller and smaller devices, and even though we don't rely on radio communications as much as we used to, which was the original usage for the Clark Belt, uh, if you look at the data, it turns out that our Clark Belt in the last decades has been increasing exponentially in population. Right? It, it's very faint, but it's increasing exponentially. Um, and the funny thing is that if you extrapolate this, and, and again, I don't know if it makes sense to extrapolate this or not, but if you extrapolate it, then by the year 2200, we will be visible to uh, our neighbors if they have the technology that we have now. So we will reach that 10 to the minus 4 ballpark. Um, ballpark. Well, well, by um, neighbors, what do you mean? Uh, uh, within a radius of about uh, 100 light years. Oh, okay. Well, that's pretty good. Um, uh, Christian, Christian, you have any other questions you want to read? I've got a couple, but I'll let you do some if you want. Uh, sure. Uh, let me just take a look here. Um, well, uh, Ian Lauer asks, let's assume most advanced civilizations are not broadcasting in radio. Uh, what's another way you think these guys, what's the way you guys think these civilizations would be communicating? Oh, I know. I think- Gamma ray burst Morse code. Yeah, exactly. You know, boom, it has to be, yeah, just setting off nukes, right? Uh, so, okay, I think that kind of flows into what we were just talking about uh, in terms of, you know, the, the visible uh, light or the IR light signature. But what other methods could be used? What other non-radio methods could be used to communicate? I mean, if um, again, it's very risky to extrapolate technology. I mean, some people in the SETI community are thinking about communications uh, via neutrinos. For instance, that's that's really really exotic, uh, or or even more gravitational waves. Uh, that some very advanced aliens could be producing gravitational waves that have the advantage that they don't uh, fade out so quickly with distance. So the signal uh, remains for for long distances, uh, but of course they're very hard to detect. Yeah, well, if you're saying yeah, because if you're saying non-radio. Then you're really saying non E and M, non electromagnetic, uh, and that yeah. kind of cuts off a lot of communication uh, sources. So, so yeah, neutrinos and uh, gravitational waves. I hadn't heard that one. That one's interesting. Yeah, that's very interesting. But that's you know, like for really extremely advanced civilizations, if you're thinking about civilizations with our technology or maybe moderately advanced, then definitely if if they are communicating, I think maybe uh, with with lasers like uh, you know high powered lasers or something like that would be a, a way to do it but who knows yeah i like the idea of some advanced civilization bouncing a black hole just dribbling yeah. and then uh, there's all these gravitational waves going out in, uh, in some kind supernova of, morse code blowing yeah. up supernova <laughs> that's right the universal black hole association where they're playing ba- basketball with black holes uh okay so neil you as a solar expert what do you make of that Canadian astronomer paper a year ago on 234 different stars emitting laser pulse-like emissions? Have you heard of that? Yeah, I, I saw that paper. I, I have to say I I really have a hard time uh, believing that that's real. Uh, I think um, 
it's um uh, it, can, it might can you be describe for those of us who don't know what that what that is about yeah so there was this let's see if i remember this because yeah that was a long time ago i remember we um we looked at that and, and we we discussed it um so this was in um, this was a work where they they did a survey of uh, a large number of stars and they look at their their spectra of these stars and for 200 and something of these stars they claim to have found some um uh, some periodic signal in the spectrum of these stars i don't remember the details but the, the idea was that somehow uh, the some civilization around these stars was encoding some laser signals um in the that the, you know, came to us encoded with the stellar spectrum, uh, where this laser signal was encoded, uh, and they found like two hundred and something of them. And yeah, like I said, I, I don't remember the details because that was over a year ago. And uh, and do I you know what the we, data set was that that they used or from this? This this was optical spectra, if I remember correctly. Okay. It's important hmm. to realize, folks, that there are all kinds of errors or biases or systematic things that could appear in data if you are not super careful about how you're processing. So uh, right. when when you publish a result like this, um, one needs to be, and, and, and I'm only talking about a general sense, not this particular case. Uh, there's been plenty of times when you need to make darn sure that you don't introduce systematic errors in your processing or that you, uh, that you are not, you know, uh, somehow affected by some kind of uh, bias in some way. Uh, and you need to eliminate all other sources of these uh, errors or biases. And if, when all of that's done, if you've done the best you can and you still see the signal, then you've got real science questions to ask about it. You know, you can say, well, what is this? Um, and we Exactly. And then even then, it's very important other groups reproduce your results with mm -hmm. different instruments, uh, with different analysis, different people working on it. And and so far, we haven't seen any reprodu reproduction of these results. So that's why I'm still a bit skeptical about that. Um, instruments, astronomical instrumentation is very, very complex, as you guys know. And mm -hmm. uh, oftentimes, there's all sorts of side effects that, that you are just unaware of and if you if you let me just give an example you, you mentioned tabby star um some time ago and we we did observations with my colleagues here um and we have a paper it's been about a year that we've been working on this and the paper is is almost ready uh for for submission we'll submit it soon but we encountered so many unexpected problems we encountered so many errors in the analysis in the in the instrumentation we found three different instrumental errors with telescopes that were well known with instrumentation that was well known and we actually had a podcast i think it was a 90 minute podcast devoted to explaining all the problems that we have not, not the results because we wanted to highlight the problems i mean oftentimes we talk about the the fascinating results that we get in astronomy. But I think we don't talk enough about the problems, the errors, the frustration, the things that don't work. Um, oh, I and, know. And, so, it's, it, yeah, and yeah. I'm glad that sounds like a great topic to discuss because 
Um, it's something I don't, and another, another thing that I think is lacking is how difficult it is that we don't talk about this enough anyway, is how difficult it is to reproduce someone else's results using the same data. Sometimes it's so sensitive to the software program that you ran that if you run another program or in another language, even let's say you don't, you, what you, you publish a paper on something written in IDL, but then, you know, somebody else tries to do the same thing using your algorithm, say in Python, uh, and they get a different result. That's that's common. <laughs> I, it's, it's, it's astonishing to me how sensitive even the computer that you used is to recreating a result. Uh, do do you agree with that, or do you think it's not so hard? No, no, I, I absolutely agree with you, and that's why I think we always have to uh, take all these spectacular groundbreaking results we always have to take them with a grain of salt unless until they have been reproduced by by other people in the community i mean oftentimes we see these very uh shocking headlines of some uh you know uh, some some very impressive results some very shocking uh investigations uh, we have to be a little cautious we have to wait until something is fully uh you know has been fully established before we before we accept it as as the truth that's uh, right. That's, I mean, yeah, because think about it. Same data, folks. Same series of pictures. You run the same code on it twice, and you get an answer, or maybe five times, whatever it is that you do, and you get your results. And then someone else tries to do that and gets something different. Nothing else has changed except maybe the software. That is harder to do than you think to try and recreate the results that someone else has got. Even if, and so what I've seen happen is they'll take that code, that exact code that the, that the author of the paper, uh, used and run it. And if they get the results, then they can maybe try and understand what that code is doing and build from there. But it's so code based now. Uh, it's amazing how you've got to have never really knew, good. Never knew science. that was so sensitive, even just to the it machine. It isn't always, or, but I mean the thing. Yeah, I know, like, but I mean it can be. I didn't. I didn't. I've never. Honestly, this is news to me. I never heard of a case where that happened. So uh, it's pretty well, illuminating. It, it's it's rare enough that people even try to reproduce results, but that's a yeah. that's a different conversation. Fascinating. <laughs> that's why it's so important. That's why it's so important that people uh, publish their data and their codes, so other people can look at the codes. And, and right. maybe spot some errors or, or whatever. Right. Okay. Mad End has a really good question um, about Plato. Uh, this is a future ESA mission. That's I forget the acronym because it's non-intuitive, but it's supposed to look at planets uh, around other stars, and it will be looking for exomoons. Uh, how close will it come to finding exobelts? Which let me let me just rephrase that into a broader question. Are there other data sets coming down the pike, among them Plato, that might help you find an exobelt? Uh, definitely Plato and Tess are going to be Tess, great. really? You think Tess can help? Even with its 27-day yeah. cadence? Exactly. But, you know, it's uh, it's going to be good for Red Dwarfs. And, um, you know, Clark Bells are easy easier to find around Red Dwarfs. So, who knows? Uh, the thing is that we have no idea if they if Clark belts exist. We have no idea how densely populated they are. We, we have to look. But the nice thing I want to say is that it's free. I mean, the, it's free to look at the data. We're, we're getting all this transit data. Right. Uh, we we have well lots look, of yeah. exactly. Yeah. We're not doing dedicated observing time looking for looking for exobelts. Exactly, because people are looking for exomoons, for exorings, for exobelt, for exoplanets. So yeah, we just need to use the same data. Set. Uh, are you using Kepler to try and find some? 
uh, I myself, I'm not. I'm trying to work on the simulations to first, you know, try to get a better understanding, a better feeling of what these light curves look like. Uh, you know, work more on the on the theoretical side because I, I really think that's where at this point we need to 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 work on these details. Um, but yeah, definitely Kepler could perhaps be. Uh, you know, uh, we, we have all these Kepler data um, available. Uh, the data, of course, is, is publicly available, and and that's a huge amount of data that we should be we should be looking at. Okay, good uh, point. Yeah, you, uh, super. I'm going to close with Superluminal's comment, and then I got a quick question for you that you could answer yes or no to if you want. Superluminal goes, you know, the more we discuss interstellar communication, the more you realize that light is really slow, really, really slow. <laughs> That's a yeah. good comment, Superluminal. It's really true. Okay, Hector, I'm going to put you on the spot. Life in the universe, yes or no? Common or not? What do you think? Yes and yes. You think it's common? And Okay. It's, it's Yes, uh, All right. it's, just, it's just an opinion. It's not a scientific... Of course, uh, I know. That's why I was putting you on the spot there. <laughs> intelligent life in the universe, moderate or otherwise. Common or non... Yes or no, common or non-common. I'm going to say yes, because we're here, but, you know. I'm going to say yes, and I'm going to say uncommon, just from looking at the history of life on Earth. Mm-hmm. We've had, you know, billions of years of life on earth and very few years comparatively of in semi-intelligent life on it okay well i'm just gonna leave on a pessimistic note and say no and no i don't think there's very much life in the universe and if there is there certainly isn't much technology out there so i, I, I am We're not, not convinced so you want to bet Let, let's make a bet on it what that there's what, that there's life oh, out, right, elsewhere in the universe or that civilizations guys. are are common that uh, well, you, you said no to. Uh, I don't, I don't think what, what I don't think life is common in the universe. I think it's oh, rare, and I think and I think it, based on that, that means technology is technological civilizations are even rare, if non-existent. Okay, so are we making a bet? Are, uh, you well, know, we have Hector, to do life or not life in the universe. Is life common or not? That's what we have to do. How about this? Life. How about this, Tony? Uh, can we find life here in our solar system apart from Earth? No. No. Okay. That's the bet. Uh, well, Hector, what do you think? You think there could be life elsewhere in our in our solar system other than Earth? Yes. Okay. So. Okay. Well, what's the bet? Europa. What's the bet? <laughs> Europa Enceladus. A dinner. A dinner. Okay. I will take you to dinner if I lose, and you'll take me to. And I will. I will uh, fly you from the Canaries to here to Florida, and we will go to a real nice dinner, and then you'll do the reverse for me. Well, I'm I'll, sure. I'll I'll sure just, to, just to tease whoever lost, you know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. Dinner. Details to be worked out later. Life is not common in the universe. That's what I say. And we won't find it in our own solar system. And Hector I got to admit, I'm going with Hector on this one. I know everybody does. That's because you can't, you, you just, you just, it's just bothersome, isn't it? To think that, that life is, you realize if, well, if life is found here on Earth, and someone else commented on this in the live chat, if we find life on Mars, Enceladus, Europa, Titan, wherever, and is independent of Earth. It didn't come here there by panspermia. Then life is everywhere. It's absolutely everywhere because we'll have two instances independent of each other in the same right. solar system. Then I will say life is everywhere you look. But I mean, you know, Earth has life on it, and Earth formed from the same cloud that 
you know, Mars and the others formed from. So I think that, you know, the ingredients for life within our solar system, within this solar system, you know, I, I'm betting that, you know, we've already seen them. I don't have to bet that. We've already seen that the ingredients are around. So, you know, I think it's possible life could have kicked off someplace else in our solar system, whether it's ubiquitous everywhere, you know, but in our solar system. That's why I'm going with Hector on this If one. it's in our solar system, it's ubiquitous. One goes to the other. So I'll uh, see you at dinner. All right. <laughs> <laughs> on on you guys that's right it's on you guys yeah all right turn out to all uh, right folks well i want half the menu i better stop here as fun as this <laughs> is i am loving this conversation but i have to stop now this was telescope talk pro hangout with my co-host christian reddy and our guest today was hector socas navarro who uh was working on who has been working on this these simulations to help tell us what would we expect to see if uh, of a technological civilization from a clark exobelt uh transiting another star and uh the paper is linked in the description box so please check it out i also put a link to the press release if you don't want to bother reading the paper though the one that was put out about this uh as well so thank you hector so much for taking time out it's, it's been my pleasure thank you for inviting me yeah i hope you'll come back you know we should have a solar physics i didn't get even a chance to talk about the observatories uh in the canary mm-hmm. islands but i i would love a chance to do that too so maybe you'll come back yeah perhaps. definitely uh, yeah, I would, I would love that. Yeah, I'll make you a special rate. Ah, oh, good. <laughs> Boy, everything's costing me. I, I, why do I have a feeling this is going to cost me? All right. All we right, we have a sponsor, you know, so. That's, oh, yeah. What am I worried about? Put another tag, right? <laughs> OPT announced their withdrawal of support from Deep That's Astronomy. Right, because Tony made a stupid <laughs> bet on Hangout, and now they're, they're like, what are you doing? <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, folks, I want to thank OPT Telescopes for sponsoring this. Thank you guys so much. Check them out. The web, the link's in the description box. And I will be back on Thursday where we are going to be talking about, with our Future in Space Hangout with Harley Thronson. We are going to be talking about uh, Louvoir, the upcoming, the last of our series of the upcoming uh, missions being considered for the 2020 Decadal Survey. We've already talked about HabX. We've talked about Lynx. We've talked about uh, the, uh, uh, the other space telescopes. I forgot the other one. Anyway, um, Louvoir is coming up next. That's our last one. And uh, we'll be talking about what that will be looking at as a space telescope coming up. So thank you all so much for watching. On behalf of Christian and, and Hector, thank you for watching. And as always, keep looking up.